Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Ah, there we go. First service. I didn't even have to wake you up. That's awesome. No, I'm just playing. Hey, if I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Jordan Erickson, and it is my great joy to be able to serve Lakewood as the student ministries director here and to also bring you God's word this morning. And today, my hope for everyone in this room is that when we open up God's word together, that your soul would be refreshed and that you would experience the extravagant love that God has for you. I mean, this is God's word, and that means the living and active God who created us, who loves us, is taking the time to speak to us through the pages of this book. And I don't know about you, but that's empowering, and that is refreshing to me to know that the God of the universe has time to talk to you and me. And so I pray that as we hear God's truth today, that you will be able to take a break from the pressures that you're experiencing in life and that you would walk away from this service feeling refreshed. So let me ask you a question. Where do you place your hope? Do you place it in horizontal things like work, relationships, money, grades? I mean, we could continue to go on and on. Or instead, do you choose to place it vertically, placing your hope in God and his kingdom? And it's natural for us to hope in so many different things. We were created to be hopeful people, amen? And as we begin to express that natural hope that is within us, it can begin to permeate into hoping for things of this world. Oh, I hope that my spouse remembers our anniversary. I hope that my boss gives me that promotion I deserve. I really hope my teacher forgets to collect the homework. I really hope Jordan did not drink any coffee today. (laughs) That one's a little too real for the staff and the students in this room, but you get the idea. We all tend to place our hope in horizontal things because at some point we want to believe that those hopes can satisfy the cravings of our heart. And unfortunately, when we place our hope in these things or these people, our hope is not really often satisfied. And even if it is, that satisfaction doesn't last. And we often end up feeling guilty or bad that we would put our hope there in the first place. But there is another option, and that is to place your hope vertically in the eternal God who will satisfy that hope and even better, will never put you to shame when you place your hope in him. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Romans 5. If you don't, that's A-OK. We have some in the back. Feel free to grab one. Uh, this is, I love this passage that Paul writes about. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and give you some context to this passage. Paul is writing to a church that is hurting and trying to figure out how to get along. The Jews and the Gentiles of this church have differing opinions on how exactly church should be done. What kind of messages should we preach? What kind of music should we play? What are the rules that we have to do church and life by? And a lot of people are beginning to wonder if their church is going to pieces. Can this Roman church survive the infighting in the most important city in the world, by the way? And that's when Paul writes this letter to a church that he loves so dearly And we begin to read, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Y'all, oh my goodness, this is so exciting to me. And if we take a minute to break down what Paul is writing here, we get three distinct sections. And if you're a note taker, this is the outline of where we're going. Verses 1, 2, and 11 discuss what we have obtained in Jesus Christ. Verses 6 through 10 explain the reasons that we have those things. And verses 3 through 5 bring it full circle, and they talk about because of what we have in Christ, what we are able to accomplish. Now, just by show of hands in this room, how many of y'all here like free stuff? Hey, there is no shame. Free is my favorite flavor. And whether it's a free meal, a free t-shirt, free real estate, we all love to receive things especially when they're high quality. And Romans 1, 2, and 11 give us this beautiful list of free things or gifts that we receive because of Jesus Christ. And in the very first gift that Paul talks about is we have been justified. You have been made right before God. Your sins, your past, anything that once disqualified you, boom, it's gone, you're cleaned up, and you're fit to stand before the eternal God. And that's going to be important as we get into verses 6 through 10. Another gift that Paul talks about in that same verse is a new peace with God. And interestingly enough, uh, in both Greek and Hebrew, everybody thinks they're fascinating languages. It's kind of terrifying going through those classes, but that's okay. But in both Greek and the Hebrew, no singular word for peace actually exists. Rather, there are multiple words that are used to describe situations in which peace can occur. And the word that Paul uses here in this model of peace is Irene. And Irene describes a peace that comes from no longer being at war with God and having a restored relationship with him. But the best part is is that God's not just offering us peace. We see in verse 11 a third gift Paul talks about is reconciliation. It would be one thing if God stopped the war we didn't have to fight anymore and we could just go home and That sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me considering how powerful God is and how exhausting that war would become. But God took it a step further, and he doesn't just want to stop the fighting. He wants to reconcile with us. He wants to have a restored relationship with us. And so he takes his anger and his wrath, and he places it elsewhere. Don't worry. We're getting there really soon. And in an instant, this war between man and God is over. And John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that leads us into this fourth and final gift that Paul offers us. 
In verse 2, Paul writes that we have gained or obtained access into the grace of God. And this word access in this context is the idea of being introduced. And more specifically, we are being introduced into the grace and the hope and the glory of God. Now, introductions can be a special thing because introductions bring a unique sense of joy and excitement. You're meeting something or someone for the first time. How many of you remember the first time you were introduced to your favorite sport or your favorite instrument to play or your favorite hobby and it gave you something to be passionate about in your life. For others of you, it was people and getting to meet your best friend or your child, your nieces, your nephews, your spouse, anybody, and knowing your world was going to change for the better. And it's that same joy and excitement when we were first introduced to those things, those people, that we experience when we are first introduced into the amazing grace of God. God's looking at you and me. He's saying, welcome to my family. He wants to introduce you to a world that is far better than anything this life can offer, where you can put your hope in him, and he always has your back. And Paul says twice that because of these things, we get to rejoice. We get to celebrate the truth that we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, we receive these gifts of justification, of peace, reconciliation, access to God's family by having that faith in that same Jesus. Because remember, this is just part one, y'all. Verses 1, 2, and 11, those are the gifts that we've been given. But if you've ever worked retail at Christmas time, you know that gifts always come at a price. Someone has to buy those gifts in order for them to be given away. And that's when we dive into verses 6 through 10 and we read this really ugly progression that Paul uses to describe what our lives looked like before Jesus came to our rescue. Verse 6 says that we were weak. We were ungodly. Verse 8 says that we were sinners. And verse 10, this is the pinnacle, is we were enemies with God. Now, how many of you look at that list and you just feel so great about yourselves? I would never be wanna, or I would never want to be labeled weak. But how does your stomach not turn when the Bible acknowledges that we were enemies with God? If you've ever been to the point of having an enemy, you will know that there are serious emotions attached to that title. An enemy fills you with rage. Sometimes they make you so angry that you can't think straight. You'll do everything in your power to oppose them and to come out on top against them. In some instances, very extreme instances, you hate each other. And Paul writes that we were enemies with God. We were at war with God. And if we look around, it doesn't take a lot to see that we live in a world that is directly opposed to the good things God wants. They call God outdated, irrelevant. They call him a racist, a hypocrite. And if we're being honest with ourselves, even as Christians, there are days where we selfishly put what we want over what God wants. It feels good. It's easier than doing the hard things. And we were in a war with an all-powerful God who could wax us if he wanted to. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the pinnacle of hopelessness. 
And yet, as ugly as that situation seems, as ugly as it feels to be called weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, those aren't the only thing that Paul writes about in this text. Because when all hope seemed lost, when we were doomed to fight a war we could never win, God flipped the script in a way that has never been replicated in the course of human history. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now I love a good superhero movie. Anyone else? Right, shout out your favorites. Go ahead. Yes, exactly. Right, classic battles of good versus evil. The heroes always triumph, even if it takes two movies to do it. But there is no superhero movie, there is no comic book, there is no story where the hero willingly and successfully dies on behalf of the villain. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Hollywood can never write that script, but our God can. God looked at us, sinners and enemies of each other, sinners and enemies against him, And in his unfailing love for us, he willingly sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. And what's crazier is that Jesus willingly went, you ever think about that? Like, it's cool that God sent him, but the fact that Jesus said, yes, I will do that. Paul writes in verse 7 that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, a spotless, perfect person people wouldn't even be willing to die for. Why would anybody want to die for you and me? And yet Jesus willingly goes to this cross. He willingly says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he dies this gruesome death, and he's placed in the tomb. But he doesn't stay dead. (laughs) Three days after his death on a cross, Jesus rose up from that tomb he was placed in. And Paul writes in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is why Romans 5, 1 and 2, Paul writes that by our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that we receive these gifts like reconciliation and justification. That's all it takes to be saved, y'all. Faith in Jesus and knowing what he did for you. How awesome is that? And from that faith, we are cleaned up. Our relationship with God is restored. We have a new peace with God, and we are welcomed into that holy, glorious family of his. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where our hope comes from, from that beautiful, rugged cross and that beautiful, empty tomb. And we no longer have to place our hope in a world that is destined to disappoint us, but instead in a God who gave up everything for us. And, you know, the interesting thing about hope is that hope doesn't frequently exist without faith. If you hope in something or someone, it implies that you believe your hope can be realized. If you're a sports fan, anybody in here a sports fan? Right? If you hope your team will go the distance, at some level, you have to believe that they can win it all. Otherwise, you wouldn't have put your hope there in the first place. If you are a baker or a chef and you're trying out a new recipe and you hope other people will like it, at some level you have to have confidence in your own abilities. Otherwise, why would you even bother to try? And the same thing goes for when we place our hope in God. When we hope God will do something, we have the faith 
that he will accomplish it. And why wouldn't we? Deuteronomy 7, 9 acknowledges this glorious truth that God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, an average person lives to be, what, four, five generations max? And we're talking about a God who is faithful to us for a thousand generations. That sounds like a God that I can put my hope in. Sounds like a God we can put our hope in, amen? And yet, even though we know how powerful God is, and even though we know how unwavering his love is for us, we still have kind of a difficult time placing all of our hope in him. Now be honest with me. How many of y'all have ever prayed like this? Hey God, if it's your will, please do this. And it's natural. We're a bunch of humble Scandinavians. We don't like to rock the boat too much, you know. (laughs) Oh, got you there. (laughs) And please understand when I say this, that humility is a wonderful thing. Humility is crucial to our Christian lives because it reminds us that God's way is always better than our own. But humility is not being afraid to ask God to do hard things. Humility is not coming to God in fear, hoping maybe, just maybe, he might answer your prayers, if it's his will, of course. Paul writes in Ephesians 3.12 that because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. There's that term again. Our faith in Jesus Christ gives us permission to approach God with boldness and confidence. And Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God's will for you in that moment when you pray for something is not to try and wonder and hope if it's his will to do something. It is to lay it all down at his feet. And that is what bold hope is about, ladies and gentlemen. God, I hope you will do this. God, I know you can do this. And in humility we say, even if you don't do it my way, God, blessed be your name. Why would we ever be afraid to boldly and confidently approach a God who gave up everything for us? A God who is faithful to us for a thousand generations. His love for you, y'all, is extravagant. And he wants you in that love to speak the desires of your heart. He wants you to put all of your bold hope in him because when all of that hope is placed in him, you start to have a lot more confidence about exactly what God can do. And more importantly, you start to have a lot more confidence in who God is. So we've covered verses 1, 2, and 11, and we've covered verses 6 through 10, and Now we've come full circle, or I guess full spiral, since we're in the middle of the passage. You tracking with me? And in verses 3 through 5, Paul talks about how through the work of Jesus Christ and through our restored relationship with God, there is a point to all of the messes, all of the suffering that we have to walk through in this life. And moreover, that that suffering is purposeful because on the other side of it lies hope. And right at the beginning of verse 3, we see Paul make an interesting word choice. He declares that we rejoice in our sufferings. And some of your translations might say we glory in our sufferings. 
No one in their right mind would ever go up to somebody who's suffering, though, and tell them to rejoice. Paul, what are you thinking? Because if you've ever been in a state of suffering, you can see it's hard to think how anyone could stay positive, let alone rejoice under such intense and difficult circumstances. It's hard to find reasons to rejoice when your marriage is struggling or your child walks away from the Lord when your health takes a turn for the worse. It's hard to find ways to celebrate when you feel out of place at work or school or your life feels like it's in the middle of an inferno and you're just begging God to give you a break. We're supposed to rejoice because of the peace and the reconciliation with God. Heaven's throwing a party for us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we get saved and introduced into the family. Rejoicing and suffering are not supposed to coexist with each other. And yet, if we read a little further down the text, Paul uses a beautiful progression, quite the opposite of what we saw in verses 6 through 10, to back up that statement that, yes, we can, in fact, rejoice when great suffering lies in front of us. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And Paul writes what that hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Y'all, we do not suffer alone. We do not sit in this mess alone. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you and me. The power that created the universe, the power that rose Jesus from the grave lives inside you and I. And if that was not refreshing enough to know that God is always with us and there's some serious power going on right here, the greater truth is this, that no matter how bad things get here, no matter what kind of suffering we've got to endure in this life, it always gets better. Because on the other side of this life, there is an eternal paradise where we will be in the presence of God, where we will suffer no longer, and everything we had to deal with here will all be worth it. And that's why we can place our hope in Jesus Christ, and we know full well that he will never put us to shame. That's why even when our family and our friends and our leadership disappoint us, we're not shaken because our hope doesn't belong there. That's why even when our adversaries mock us, even when Satan comes to speak lies, you seriously believe in God? What's wrong with you? How could God possibly forgive you? Just look at what you've done in your past. You just keep on letting them chirping, keep on letting them murmur, because we know that where Satan lies, this alive and active word of God speaks the truth of who we really are, ladies and gentlemen. And it's why even when you feel like your life is in the fiery furnace and everything around you is heating up, you can get on your knees and you can cry out to God. God, I know, God, I know you have the power to fix my marriage. God, I know you have the power to heal my body. God, I know you have the power to save my child, to make all of this pain and this hurt and this suffering go away. God, would you please do that? But God, even if you don't, I will still bless your name. Because I know what you did at the cross for me. I know what you did in the empty tomb. And God, that is good enough for me. There is no politician, there is no athlete, there is no celebrity, no pastor, no church who can offer us the peace and the redemption and the hope that Jesus can. And I don't care what I've got to suffer through in this life. I don't care how think hard things get because it is worth it to know the Jesus who died for me. 
it is worth it to know the Jesus who loves me, who restored me back to God. Knowing him is the best thing ever, y'all. And when you place your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ, not only will you get to know him, you will get to spend an eternity with him. Ladies, tonight at Redeemed, you're going to hear from an extraordinary woman who believes that very same thing, who is so unashamed of knowing Jesus and placing her hope in him that she is unconcerned with the consequences. Next Sunday, everyone here is invited. We've got the all-church picnic and baptisms going on, and you're going to see members of our own Lakewood family who believe there is nothing sweeter than proclaiming the great name of Jesus. And maybe you feel that way too and you want to get baptized, come talk to one of us. Y'all be bold because God is inviting you into something extraordinary. Number one, to know him, to have peace with him, to be reconciled to him by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But number two, and this is so cool to me, God is inviting us to be his instruments of mercy, to share our hope with a world that is in desperate need of it. Is there any sweeter calling on all of our lives than to be a part of the work that God is doing to restore this world? Mm -mm. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've never really heard that truth before, that Jesus died for your sins, that he makes you clean before God. And if you have faith in this truth, you will be forgiven. And if you have any questions about that or anything and you just want to talk about that, I'll be right up here at the front. I'm a hyper extrovert. More people, the better. But, but talk to me. Talk to our staff. Talk to our leadership, our pastors, our elders. We all believe that knowing Jesus is the best thing, and we would love to be able to chat with you. And for everyone else in this building, everyone in this building, my hope for you today and my prayer is that God has refreshed your soul with the truth, that Jesus has justified you, that he has reconciled you, that he has introduced you into his glorious heavenly family. And nothing, nothing, ladies and gentlemen, will ever change the love that he has for you. And no matter how hard this life gets, no matter what we have to endure here, my prayer is that when people ask you, who do you place all of your hope in, that you would proudly and confidently answer the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the truth that Sunday has come and went, and we know that your son is alive today. And because of your son being alive today, even though we were once enemies with you, that we are restored back to you, and that our relationship with you has been reconciled with a new peace. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room today that um, as we go or on our way, that we would always be reminded of that truth, that you are always with us and that we have a restored relationship with you so that we can place all of our bold hope in you. When things are going well, that we would rejoice. When things are hard, that we would rejoice because we know the truth, that there is something greater for us on the other side. Lord, give this, this audience a peace. Give them the wisdom and the truth to know and be refreshed that your Holy Spirit dwells in them. And God, as we open up this time of communion, would you please just, uh, just be with us and refresh our souls as we partake in the, in the elements. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you the glory in your precious name. Amen.